I guess to start out, I'd like to thank Dr. Lowen and Lori Hom, Jeremy and Lorena, and Tim Sletton. Tim knows what's coming. You don't? They set me straight. It's clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you by Steelers Wheels. If you don't get it, watch last week. We were in Judges 10 and in first part of 11 last week. And the Philistines are to the west and they're pushing through to the east, cutting Israel in half. The Ammonites and some other peoples are to the east and they're pushing west, cutting Israel in half, putting pressure to the north and the south, they're killing and they're pillaging and they're robbing and just making life miserable for the people of Israel at this time. And for 18 years, this isn't going on. For 18 years, this is continuing. And for 18 years, Israel continues to worship the false gods and the idols of the peoples around them until finally it's enough, it's too much. And they repent and they forsake their idols, and they put them away, and they tell God, we're done with this, and we're going to worship you. Just deliver us, save us, get us out of the mess that we've created for ourselves. And we are introduced to a man named Jephthah, a mighty warrior. His reputation had gone out, but he was the son of of a prostitute. And for that reason, his half-brothers had driven them from their home. And he'd gone off to the border country, and because of his natural charisma, a group of individuals, Scripture calls them worthless men. Jephthah was considered a worthless man. And yet they gathered around him, and around him they found a sense of community and a sense of belonging, and nobody messed with him. Until finally his brothers and some of the other leaders from his hometown, his home area, came to him hat in hand, humbly embarrassed, would you come back and be our leader? And he says, the only reason you want me back is to do the fighting for you. And they said, absolutely. You're right. You come back, you will be our leader, and we will follow you. And so with that agreement, Jephthah came back to be, his, be the leader of the people and the region that had once thrown him out. And in chapter 11, verse 29, where we pick up the story today, we read... Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." 
So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities. And as far as Abel, Kerimim, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of the Lord, or the people of Israel. And we read that, and we just see some names, some areas, whatever, and it's easy to gloss over it, because what's it mean to us? You know, if where I grew up, I can say, oh yeah, we can go through Ansley, we can go through Sweetwater, we can go through, and yeah, that's just names to y'all. You have no idea. And we read this and we think, wow, we don't know these names, what's significant, what's it mean? But one of the things I found significant here is as he passed through these different places, he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah he passed on to the Ammonites. It's kind of his last little stop, I suppose, gathering an army. And at Mizpah, if you go back to Genesis chapter, make sure I have this right, chapter 31, it's at Mizpah that Laban catches up with Jacob. If you remember, Jacob had left home for his health. He and his brother weren't getting along so well. And he spends years with his uncle's family. And he acquired great wealth. And then in the dead of the night, he takes off with everything that he had to make sure that Uncle Laban didn't rob him on the way out the door. And at Mizpah, Laban catches up with him. And it's there that they have an, a, a treaty or they establish a covenant. And they erect a tower. It was called the Watchtower. And, and Laban agreed, I will not cross this point in anger to pursue you ever. And Jacob agreed, I will not cross this point in anger to pursue you ever. What's done is done. What's past is past. We agree. We're just, we're going to get along. And at this place, a significant place in the history of God's people, this is where Jephthah makes a vow. Lord God, if you grant me victory, then when I get home, whatever is the first to leave my home, I will offer up to you as a burnt sacrifice. Now we read that and we think this is stupid. What do you expect? However, culturally and in history, you go throughout the world, there continues to be a lot of places in which the home and the stable are connected. The home and the barn are one structure. And you live on one side and your most prized livestock live on the other. If you had horses, if he had horses or donkeys or he had oxen, they would have been kept close to home so he could keep an eye on them. And there's no doubt in my mind that as crazy as this vow seems, that as he's making it, he's imagining his best animal. His most valuable animal would be probably the first thing that would be walking out or the first thing that he would see when he arrived home. But he makes this vow before the Lord at Mizpah. And from there, he travels across the Jordan to the east to confront the Ammonites, to end their oppression. 
And it says he struck them from a roar to the neighborhood of Minnah, 20 cities. And so we read this, and it's easy to assume he went out in the morning. By 10 o'clock, after a nice leisurely breakfast, they went into battle. And by the end of the day, he's on his way home. This was a campaign. This took days, perhaps weeks. And they met, and I'm sure on that one day as they fought, maybe it was a couple days before the Ammonites finally decided, this is dumb, we aren't winning, and they all began to flee back to their individual towns and cities. And that's why we see 20 cities destroyed as they pursued these guys running back home to the safety or the perceived safety of their homes and their cities. They followed them to these places and they destroyed the cities. And we read in verse 33, the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Their oppression on a national level, the oppression of Israel on a national level, was never again an issue with the people of Ammon. And in verse 34, Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. He had moved his family there when they'd called him back from the land of Tob, wherever that is in the border country. He had moved his family back there. As he returned home, behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And so you can imagine, while he's been away fighting, we think of it from his side, but imagine at home his wife and daughter. For those of you who have seen loved ones go away overseas to fight, who serve our country in that way, you understand. And daily, every day, throughout the day, she's looking out the door. She's looking out the window. Is this the day dad comes home? Every day, throughout the day, is there any dust? Can I see that somebody's coming? And finally, after these 20 cities are subdued, and I imagine in an afternoon, and she sees dust on the horizon. And perhaps here, and I see, I don't know what he was riding, I imagine him riding a horse, probably captured in battle. And as he gets closer, he's like, no one sits a saddle like dad. He's coming home safe. He's not carried home a victim of battle. He's survived and he's well, and she ran out. We've all seen the videos, the the pictures of her fighting men and women when they come home and the reunions and they surprise them at school or on the football field. And the emotion of that moment That's the picture here, as Jephthah is coming home victorious. And yet, the joy is one-sided. Because Jephthah, verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me low. 
and you become the cause of great trouble. I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Jephthah had a poor understanding of Scripture. He had a general understanding, maybe an overview, and yet he was so convinced that I have made a vow to the Lord. And perhaps his father had said, when you do something, when you say you're going to do it, you're going to do it, even to your harm, even to your hurt. He was a man of integrity, a man of his word, and he was going to keep it. And yet he had a poor understanding of Scripture. You go back to Genesis chapter 22, and when God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac, your son, your only son, the son you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me, and it says early early the next morning, Abraham got up and left for Mount Moriah where he was going to offer Isaac. And on the altar, as he bound, it doesn't even say that he bound his son, but as he put Isaac on the altar and he raised his knife, God calls out, Abraham, Abraham! And he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And at that point in history, God was establishing precedent that human sacrifice, child sacrifice, was not an acceptable form of worship to me, your creator. As you read through, and what they would have had was the first five books of the Old Testament at this point. As you read through, you see that God outlines, this is my prescribed way of worshiping me. And in Moses' last words to the people in the book of Deuteronomy, we see in chapter 12, three times, you will not worship me in the same way the people you dispossess worship their gods. And in verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12, even goes so far to say, for they even offer their sons and daughters in the fire. You will not do that. That does not please me. That does not honor me. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see other ways in which God says, don't worship me in these ways. And what's more, in Leviticus chapter 5, starting verse 4 through 13, God even makes a provision for the individual who would make a rash or a foolish vow. And this is the way you honor me without doing something sinful or wrong in the fulfillment of your vow. This is the way you buy yourself out of a foolish or a rash vow and you still maintain an honor and a respect for me and my law. God was not honored when Jephthah fulfilled his vow. It did not please God that he would sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. In verse 36, his daughter, she said to him, 
My Father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. For all the horrible dysfunction that Jephthah endured as a child in his own home, I would imagine he went overboard the other way to provide a good and healthy upbringing for his own daughter. And I can't imagine, and maybe she doesn't know what the vow had been up to this point, but hey, if you made a promise, if you made a vow to God, you keep it, even at my own expense. And when she hears what it is, make this allowance for me. Give me, verse 37, she said, let this thing be done. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity. And all, I and my companions. So he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jep, the Giladite, four days in the year. He kept his vow. She was of marrying age. And in my mind, it would have been very easy to get lost in the mountains <laughs> rather than coming home knowing what awaited. Jephthah had done a good job raising his daughter. There are those who would say that he didn't really follow through on his vow. and dead. He, Instead, he dedicated her to the service of the tabernacle so she would never marry. And she just. And the same scriptures that they used to, to justify that view are the same scripture that I would look to here and say, no, he kept it. He did as he promised God he would do. In the end, either way, he gave up the hope of his family continuing. Either way, as I see how the Hebrew is translated into English, he did carry out, he did sacrifice his daughter. And in chapter 12, it's almost, okay, that's said and done, and we go on. And the men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed the Zephon and said to Jep, why do you cross over to fight the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, if you remember, the territory of Ephraim was right there where the Philistines are coming through. It's right there where the Ammonites are coming through the other way and cutting them in half. And just for 18 years, they've allowed this to happen and they've done little or nothing. And now that Jephthah 
has been called back and made head over his area, his region of the country, and God has granted him victory, all of a sudden these guys are really bold and brave. Well, why didn't you call us? And remember, what has Jephthah just done at home to his very own daughter? He's pretty sore. He's pretty raw. I don't imagine he was a man who suffered fools poorly. And there was zero tolerance for any of this nonsense now. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you wouldn't save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? You had 18 years to do something, and you did nothing. And then when I made the offer, and I tried to gather an army, you never even picked up the phone. So why are your noses been out of shape now? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. In the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said, are you an Ephraimite? And they said, no. They said, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. For they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Moral of the story is, don't mess with the guy who just sacrificed his daughter. Ephraim comes up, and at the time, and in my study, I hadn't realized this before, but Jewish tradition states that, that Ephraim considered themselves a little bit better than the rest of Israel. Whether it's because numbers-wise, maybe they had a little better land, better suited. Whatever the reason was, they felt themselves to be a little bit better. They felt themselves to be more capable. And it's interesting because they've allowed themselves to be put upon for all this time. And so now they come and they confront Jephthah. And he says, you've got no beef with me. And when they didn't back up, take a step back quickly enough, Jephthah said, that's it, you're done. And they went to battle. And not just enough to send them back, they captured the river crossing. So when these guys came, the stragglers, the survivors, the the ones who had run away from the battle, who had retreated or just abandoned their brothers, they killed them before they could escape and get back home. Their pride exacted a heavy toll on them. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 
verse 33, we read, What more shall I say? And if you remember, Hebrews 11 would be considered the Bible's hall of faith, the hall of fame, the men and women who did great things, who attempted great things, trusting God to follow through, to carry them through, to to accomplish what it was that he had promised. And in Hebrews 11, 32 and 33, we read, What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak. We've studied them already. Samson, next week. Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Check, Jephthah conquered kingdoms. Who, who, who through faith enforced justice. Check, Jephthah enforced justice. Who through faith obtained promises. God had promised Israel, that this, God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel after that, this would be your inheritance. And through faith, he obtained promises. Jephthah was a man of great faith, and he's remembered and honored as a man of great faith. However, he was a man of bad theology. And great faith doesn't overcome bad theology. Theology is just an an understanding of who God is and what he expects. Ignorance produces, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance produces bad theology. We don't want to use ignorance. We, we, we live in a culture, in a society, I think since the beginning of time. Well, if I don't really know, then I'm not really held accountable. No, we are held accountable. We are responsible to know who God is. We're responsible to seek him out. Ignorance produces bad theology, and bad theology results in bad practice or poor living. And poor living always leads us away from God. We need to be reading and studying and learning the Word of God. It needs to be a regular practice, a consistent habit that we are in this book reading it and meditating on it, thinking on it, studying it, learning it. Because without it, we will wander about doing whatever it is that we see fit, what we deem right what we feel is right. And what feels right now, well, maybe next week, well, maybe I shouldn't have felt that way. We have to know what we believe. We have to know what the Word of God has taught us, what the Word of God says what God has established for his people to live by. 
Scripture tells us who God is. It outlines his character. God is not merely loving and merciful and gracious. God is love and God is grace and God is mercy. And scripture tells us who God is. We need to know who God is. We need to have a proper understanding of who God is because when we have a right understanding of who God is, he's not just love but he's also a God of justice who demands a payment for sin. Scripture tells us who God is. Scripture tells us who we are in light of him. And we are sinners. Lost. Incapable of pleasing him. Of knowing him apart from his grace and his mercy and his love and his call upon our lives. Scripture tells us how we rightly respond to God. We rightly respond in repentance and humble obedience. Scripture tells us what we are to believe. His written word Scripture tells us how we're to think. Scripture tells us how we are to live. And apart from this book, what are we left to do? We figure it out for ourselves. We do what's right in our own estimation, by our own judgment. We do what's right in our own eyes, and we're no better than the people we're studying right now in the book of Judges. No different. No better. Without this, there is no anchor, there is no rock, there is no baseline by which we live. It's why our culture is adrift, it's why our culture so quickly changes. It's amazing to me, in the past week, heroes of of liberal thinking are being torched for their behavior, which just a few years ago was considered acceptable and now it's no longer in vogue. And so now we're just gonna completely torch them and throw them out, even though they've done so much to advance wrong thinking leading up to this point. We have the word of God a sure thing, a steady thing, not just in the past, but for all of eternity future. If we're not giving ourselves to the knowledge and the learning and the application of God's word, how will we ever know what God expects? How will we ever know how to point that hurting, lost individual to a place of hope and restoration and redemption? And how will we ever know how I'm supposed to live in light of everything I see going on around me? Great faith does not overcome bad theology. We need to know who God is and what he expects. And apart from the Bible, you aren't going to find that 
anywhere. This is God's written word to us. Nothing can replace it. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.